This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. How are you? Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we are back to talk about film with you once again. Um, right off the bat, I want to apologize to everybody. I'm I'm feeling a little under the weather. I've got a little sinus thing, so I'm probably going to sound a tiny bit different. Hopefully not, but just to, I just want to say it up front. <laughs> um, what's going on with you? A ton. How was your birthday last week? It was great. I got to watch RoboCop. (laughs) (laughs) That's all a 44-year-old woman wants in this world. Truly a birthday dream. Yeah, I feel bad that, um, you know, we basically sat there and talked about fathers and RoboCop (laughs) and it was your birthday. And you're a little sneaky. You didn't tell anybody. I don't make a big deal out of my birthday. Really? I never do. Yeah. I kind of like to, you know, just kind of keep it quiet, do my own thing. It's not like... Once you're, I mean, people who celebrate their birthday weeks, we we can't be friends. Like, I'm not that person, especially <laughs> if you're over age 30. Like, once you're in your 30s, you cannot pay your friends in pizza and beer to move your apartment or your sure. house. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you should be celebrating a birthday week. But to each their own. I'm just saying I go comp- I go completely the opposite way. I run in the other direction. Yeah, I need to stay very quiet right now because... There are people in my life that do that, and I'm, oh, saying, no. I'm saying nothing. But yeah, I think um, another reason I kept it low key is that I've I've got a, another big thing going on. Yeah, because okay, so like last time, um, for the past couple of weeks, you know, you were mentioning, oh, I have all this stuff in the hopper, but I can't really talk about it, and I just assumed it was work stuff. But I actually think now you have like this I big one of the biggest personal things that could ever happen to somebody, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I bought a house. <laughs> I this is an bought adult, a house. adult clap for an adult. Beautiful. Beautiful. Congrats. And it's not in Los Angeles. So I had to move cross country to New York. Um, it's in my hometown. My mm. grandma's going to be moving in with me. Amazing. And yeah, I don't know if you guys remember a few I guess it was like a month and a half ago, a little while ago, a few weeks ago, when I was encouraging Millie to come up with a death plan. <laughs> yeah. And we talked about our, our wills and our our uh, last will and testaments. And that's why I had to do one, because I actually own something now. But let me ask you, so because I'm very curious about this, simply because, you know, I think a lot of people over the course of the pandemic... have begun to sort of understand a little bit more about how they live and where Mm -hmm. they live and like the, the space that they live. I mean, come on, you spend like a year and a half inside and you're like looking around your house going like, is this big enough? Is this what I want? Can I stand to be here for another five years or whatever? Um, 
so I've been talking a lot with people like friends and family who are also like, I, I'm thinking about buying a house. I'm thinking me personally, I'm thinking about buying a house too. Yeah. So what, how, what made you come to this decision? It was a couple of different things. Namely that my, my grandma's dementia is, pro- is progressing to a point where she's not going to be able to live on her own for much longer. And she absolutely does not want to live in a home and no one else in my family can really take her in. So I was forced with this decision of like, okay, either I put her someplace where she doesn't want to be, or I just figure something else out. But it was actually, that was a portion of it. That was a big part of it. But I think the biggest thing is just like, I've just reached a point in my life where I'm just kind of done with living in cities. Like I love visiting cities. I love seeing my friends in cities. As a writer, it is miserable to try to write in a one bedroom apartment in the middle of LA. Like it just has, I've worked, I've tried every single kind of workaround I could think of and I just couldn't make it work. You know, my, my neighbor in my last apartment was just like a partier, like party through the pandemic, loud, drunk all the time, just super selfish and horrible. And I just couldn't relax. And I just really, I work too hard in my life to be at a point where I can't relax and enjoy myself and, kind of have the life that I, I want. So it's kind of like dovetailed nicely. Like I definitely, I think I would have moved somewhere. I don't know that I would have moved back to my hometown, but I was ready to get out. That's another part of that. That's interesting because, you know, obviously when we did the episode about nobody's fool and we've, we've talked a lot about Warwick where you're from Mm -hmm. in New York. Um, and I and I always it seems obviously very charming. Oh, yeah. You go and come visit. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I don't even care if you say no right now. I'm still coming. Like I'm, I set it up as an artist retreat. I'll pretend I'm an artist. I will, li- I will live on your property for three months. I will grow vegetables. I'm very much into this idea. So beautiful. Don't worry about it. I'm coming. Um so not only are you buying a house, but you're also like going back to your hometown, which is this whole other component. Yeah. That's very interesting to me. So what made you decide to do that besides grandma? Was there any other reason? No, it was literally my grandma. Like yeah. I would have chosen somewhere else. Um, and I'm glad to be where I am. Like, I think it's going to be exciting to be back there. I'm coming back at a different point in my life and I'm a totally different person. But it was never going. It was never been my first choice, if not for her. Yeah. And um I'm okay with it though. Like I like my hometown. I think that I've, you know, had have had enough therapy to move back there. And truly things have been going <laughs> at such a fast clip that I haven't even had time to process the fact that I'm moving back to my hometown yet. Yeah. It's just like do it now and deal with it later. Exactly. You, how long has it been since you've lived in your hometown? I left when I was 17 when wow. I graduated high school. Yeah. Yeah. And I went back. I lived there for like six months before I moved to Alaska. Um, and I just like stayed with my grandma and saved a little bit of money. But that was, you know, my early 20s. So I have I've been back to visit, but I haven't lived there like full time in a long time. But I think it's going to be all right. I've got a couple of friends there and my brother is close by. Plus, I've got space, man. Like I am not sweating it at all. I've got tons and tons of space. My house um, used to be in uh, an actual barn and it is a tiny farm currently. So I have like a barn, I've got a silo, I've got like other buildings and yeah. I've got some acres. Um, so I have space. Like I don't have to run into people that I don't want to. Plus I left that town of Virgin 
I can run into anyone I want in the grocery store. I've not seen any dicks. It's going to be great. <laughs> There's I no baggage. No baggage. I, I just up and left. So, yeah, I think it's it's a big deal. I moved from a one bedroom apartment <laughs> and I have like, you know, a lot of space to fill eventually, but I'm not rushing to do it. And um, yeah, I think I'm just trying to get excited about the idea of like owning something, which I just haven't, it has not been the focus of my adult life. And I never thought this would happen. Yeah. I have to say, I, I have always wanted to own my own house and I just think it's, I don't know. I know a lot of people who don't find value in that and who say the opposite, that basically owning is a more of a hassle. And I have a lot of friends who are homeowners that are like, I wish I was just a renter. Uh, I envy you. Um, But I'm with you. Like I, I didn't, I wouldn't have expected to really want it after a certain amount of time. Like, I think that Mm -hmm. once you collapse the sort of um, the narrative of like, well, I'm going to get married and have my kids and move into my house. Then it's sort of like, whatever, like that's you're now you're in a free fall and you don't know what's what. So does it matter if you own, does it matter if you stay in a town for a long period of time? I mean, it's just, there's no rules. Once you reject the rules, then there's no rules, right? No, there's total freedom. Um, but I, but I think I always wanted to own, like I always, and I, and, and I think what's so, um, attractive about like what you're doing is that I really want the land yeah. and, you know, I, I, I say this as I'm not like a farmer. Let's get serious. I'm not, um, <laughs> I was never in 4-H. I would be horrified to get up and like, f- you know, have to figure out how to like get pests off my crops and stuff. That would just be like so stressful to me. But there's always this idea that I've had that like, oh, I would love to have like a garden and like grow some vegetables. You know, my mother is like a huge gardener. She she has an amazing garden in her backyard. And she's taught me kind of a lot about growing flowers and plants and stuff like that. So I've always wanted like space. And that was the thing about L.A., um, that was so hard was that I did not have any outdoor space whatsoever, you know, a lot of people in LA live in apartment buildings and there's not really anything. They don't have yards. They don't have porches a lot Mm -hmm. of times. I didn't even have a porch. Um, So I'm just like sitting here looking at you having gone through this process and knowing that you have like acreage and I'm like, (laughs) Oh my God, I got to do that. I got to like get on this tip. This is inspiring. (laughs) 100%. And I look, I did it alone. Yeah. I don't come from family money. Mm-hmm. You can do it on your own. Like it might be harder to figure some stuff out, but you know, I had to learn a long time ago how to ask questions and ask for help. And I did. There was a lot that I didn't understand. And I just asked people to explain it to me. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like for a very long time, the idea that a single woman would buy her own house was kind of unheard of. Yeah. And like the laws reflected that a lot for up until oh, like semi recently. Um, but I think a lot more of us are doing it, obviously. Right now, for me, I think the biggest challenge with, you know, just doing the research of trying to figure out if this is something I actually want to do and where that's another yeah. question, obviously, is just the market because, of course, everybody is buying wanting to buy houses like right now everybody wants to buy a house because of the pandemic and if everybody that was in already in a house they want to upgrade and have more rooms and everybody mm-hmm. who was living in apartments like me want their own space so it was it's really competitive and i hope that changes because honestly as like a first time home buyer like it's terrifying 
Just yeah. the idea of like, you know, pre getting pre-approved for a mortgage, putting down money, knowing that you're going to have to compete for homes because the inventory yep. is is small right now. So I'm just knowing that and knowing that you've just done it and now you're yeah. there is so impressive. But I do think this is important to talk about. Like I am I am a single black woman who just bought a farm. I just bought a house with land on my own. This house, my mortgage, and this is this is also part of the reason that I was like, yeah, I got to get the fuck out of here. My mortgage for this house is half of what it costs to rent a one bedroom apartment in L.A. Yeah. All I did in L.A. was work like that is it was a great place for my career and a terrible place for me personally. Like I did not have a life. I didn't do anything. I never we were talking about it the other day, like I never went to the observatory. I never went to Joshua Tree. I never went to Big Sur. I didn't do anything. I stayed in my house and I worked for almost five years. Listen, I'll just tell you right now, the observatory. the like. OK, I don't want to I don't, listen. You guys can go. It's fun. But really, for me, when I went up there, because I hiked up there, too. Right. Which made, I remember. Yeah. And I actually have a harrowing story where my friend Heather, <laughs> my friend Heather Jewett and I hiked up to the observatory. And then we decided to take this like, um, you know, the path less taken. It was like this kind of dirt path that actually didn't go anywhere but to the actual cafeteria of the observatory. And we were like on the side of a mountain freaking the fuck out, like on our hands and knees, like sweating dirt on our faces. And all we do is we pop up at the end of the trail and there's like people eating French fries with their families. And so I was like, oh shit. And then we were like, should we jump over the wall? Because we don't want to come back because it's really steep. <laughs> and then when we finally went back and then went to the observatory, I was like, oh, this is it. This is where they filmed um, right. Rebel Without a Cause. And then there's that, cre <laughs> there's that creepy statue face of James Dean. And then that was it. This like, is where they filmed Rush Rush by Paula Abdul. Exactly. This is where Keanu Reeves um, was romantic with Paula Abdul. No, I mean, that's, I don't know. I mean, the observatory is great, but I just want to say that my experience of it wasn't this grand thing that well, this, you're missing. This is part of it, though, for like my, and, and I will take this on as my own, like, I'm not blaming L.A. for my experience of L.A., L.A. is great for what it is for people who want it. I am genuinely and have been since the day I got here. I have been genuinely not curious about this city. Yeah. Like I don't I didn't do anything because I didn't really want to. There's nothing here that felt like it fit me. And so one thing I'm, I think that's why I'm kind of not nervous about moving back to New York, because I just fit in there. I don't fit in in L.A. I never felt like I fit in in L.A. And my lack of community like proved that. <laughs> and so I'm kind of excited to just get back to a place where, you know, I don't have to feel like a loser because <laughs> I really did in L.A. Like I didn't date. I did, I did not do anything. My life stopped for almost five years. All I did was work. I moved here to work and that's what I did. And I'm excited to get back to like myself. Well, I'm just going to say for the record, having been a friend of yours while you lived in L.A., you weren't a loser because I don't hang out with <laughs> losers. I Thanks. definitely don't start podcasts with losers. <laughs> just saying. But I get it because I've had probably the worst experiences of my life since moving to yeah. L.A. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, like back to back. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like 
truly LA was giving me a message like you should not live here because yeah. we're just going to keep throwing terrible things at you. But on, I understand that. I understand the feeling of not connecting with the city and, you know, and yeah, working all the time and not having any fun sucks. And that yeah. will really color your perspective about anywhere you are. Um, and I know we have a lot of people who live in L.A. that listen to this podcast and they will probably like reach out to us and be like, L.A. loves you, Danielle. Stay. But fuck it. She bought a farm. She's leaving. <laughs> Is there a farm? You give her a farm in Silver Lake and she'll stay. But if not, she's got to go. Look, I'm turning my silo into an office. So if you can give me that situation in the middle of L.A., I'll come back. I'll come back if I can have zero. My next neighbor is another farm. My brother, like Corey, who's probably listening to this right now, he keeps telling me, like, you should get a dog or a gun. And I'm like, I am not doing either of those. Things. Oh, dang. I'm just going to get a security system. It's like security systems can be bypassed. And I'm like, in the middle of nowhere. OK, <laughs> I, I'm always going to advocate for people getting dogs. So I think you should get a dog. And actually, I can see you with one of those little sissy SpaceX grandma <laughs> shotguns. I'm not going to lie. I see you with it. Um, and I know gun. you're gu- I know you're gut adverse, but I'm just saying looks wise. <laughs> I see it for you. But but honestly, like, you know, you you have to stop watching a 24 movies, at least for the first like two or three years that you live in this farm. I can't don't don't watch anything like don't watch like the Wicker Man. Don't watch Children of the Corn. Don't watch anything that is like in a rural environment that involves like hay bales or something. Just don't do any of that. You know what I watched the other night on purpose for fun? The history of violence. Yikes. See, you're doing can't be doing that shit. Meanwhile, your grandma's like, when are we moving in? We can oh, do this together. She is ready. This is the other thing. Like, she is going to have the whole place booby trapped. So don't even worry about it. She already hasn't like a weapon in every fucking room of her of her apartment. So I guarantee I'll just be sitting on the couch one day and get stabbed by one of her knives that she's put in the couch. Listen, I we you made me watch Hereditary and I've seen what happens in creepy attics. So but this is also the cool thing about this place. I don't have a basement, which I did not want. I did not want a creepy ass East Coast basement. You can keep that shit. Mm-hmm. And I kind of have an attic, but it's only for like the fans in the electrical shit in the house. So it's I literally live in just the house. Like I don't have to worry about people living above me or like squatters hanging out in a basement. Yeah. Just make sure you clear the attic of any dolls and you'll be oh, fine. Of, of haunted dolls. Get the shit out of here. <laughs> This is exactly you've seen this place this is exactly the kind of place that I, I actually asked the, the previous owner. They're like, do you want to keep anything in the barn? And I'm like, clear it the fuck out. I don't want any talisman hanging around ready to bring me some bad luck. Get a cloth a tub. I'm sure it's beautiful. Get it the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah, I don't need any witch meetings. In Hell here. no. I don't want any. I'm, I don't want any bones of animals <laughs> that used to be here. Like, get it out. I'll deal with the poison ivy, get everything else out of here. But it's exciting. And I'm I'm in that weird week. So like I'm in that weird in between week where none of my stuff has arrived. Yeah. And it won't for like another five days. So I generally just like I pick the smallest room and, you know, just hold up there in my air mattress with carrot, like like someone who's, you know, been released from captivity, but still can't (laughs) handle being in the wild. Yeah. Or being in open spaces. So. It'll be all right. Eventually, I'll I'll creep out to the rest of the house. My grandma will move in, and uh, then I'll just be hanging clothes on a laundry line for the rest of my damn life. Listen, I 
love to see it. And I'm very proud of you. We all are. Congratulations on your new house. Um, I think we should have a I saw what you did convention once you get things up and running in the in the farm. So completely. We're having a whole we'll have a whole jam. I can, we can look, we can project movies on the side of the barn. It'll be great. Uh, and not for nothing. But my whole goal and plan with this place is this is going to be like our Golden Girls retirement place. I've already talked it out with my friend Amy, Amy Els. I know you're listening as well. Like we were, we were thinking about it a lot during the pandemic. And I think, look, single women, we need to take care of ourselves. And, and like I have got the space and people can just come on in. Listen, I'll, I'm ready to Mad Max Fury Road with you all, Fuck any day. yeah. I'm ready. You know, I got archery range set up back there. I had some hay delivered. Hell yeah. It's just going to be tight. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of myself too. I think that it's, it's a strange thing to consider one being proud of myself, which I have not spent most of my life feeling. Um, but I was, you know, I was raised on welfare with a single mom and I'm doing this. Yeah. It's really important. You know, man, good for you. Everything's all right. And you're going to get there. We're going to have our little houses. Oh my God, we're going to have two different, because we, you have to, because we need a, a Southern Golden Girls outpost for the winter. <laughs> Listen, so. I've been collecting my desert rose throw pillows and my wicker furniture. I have a little um, hope chest filled yes. with 80s grandma furniture and knickknacks, and it just needs a home. It needs a place. <laughs> I'm going to send you some quilts. Oh my God, I'm ready. I'm so, I'm so ready. You want to get into some films? You know what? I would love to. Let's celebrate with some films. All right. So we got a theme this week. Weird. We got a theme. Um, we do themes a lot here on I Saw What You Did. And this one, you know, I think you and I talked this out Um one night and it totally makes sense to us and we um are excited to sort of dig into it so this the theme for this week is called hysterical women who have every right to be hysterical yes let's talk about the idea of women and hysteria right yeah because I think this is something that I think I even touched upon when I've talked about like the psycho bitty films you know when we did like mm -hmm baby jane and um i saw what you did just this idea that like you know obviously like there are so many stories of women who are you know quote unquote crazy hysterical psychotic right and you know however that narrative gets tucked into the story um is variable but it's like at the at the heart of it is this idea that we've grown up as women like watching television reading books watching movies hearing songs about you know crazy women hysterical women and so i don't know i think we like wanted to unpack that a little bit right yeah completely completely and i think that especially with my movie um and your movie as well like your movie strangely plays into the kind of second wave feminism that I, that i'm going to address in my in my movie but there's mm -hmm. this real there was this real need to like publicly address the way that the patriarchy was harming women's mental health, <laughs> like in a real way. So when we get into my film, I'll probably talk a little bit more about it. But 
you know, it was a women's health movement that happened around this notion that people were constantly using any reason to call women crazy. And then not only to just call them crazy or hysterical, but then to write them off from society as a result. And I and I think it's interesting that our movies are different because to me, my movie, it's it's not a Hitchcock movie, but it feels like a Hitchcock movie. Yeah. It's just kind of got that pacing and it's, um, you know, it's basically, you know, it's a classic film. It was made in the 40s, um, but it's it's more or less a psychological thriller or a thriller. And yours, I think, is more of like a family drama. It's yeah. it's, it's not a horror film, you know? No. No, not at all. And it's I mean, it's horrifying at parts, but it's yeah. not a horror film. And it's 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 dramatic in a way that feels very real. But that's more, I think, because of the the director, which we'll get into as well. But, um, yeah, I think there, there's a history of this in in gender studies and in studying the dynamics of of gender that has just always been interesting to me. Yeah. And to that point, I mean, both these movies the husbands play into the drama, Big you know, time. and it is it's basically, you know, the woman in the film who is maybe, quote unquote, hysterical. Right. Mm -hmm. And sort of the men that in their lives and how that sort of plays out. And it's different, obviously, in, in, in our choices, but it just kind of serves the theme. I just like that. When, yeah. I like it when two movies that seem different sort of fit the theme. Um, so I'm excited to talk about it. Well, let's get into it. Yeah, <laughs> You're going first, right? Yeah, I'm going oh first. Oh my God, this is a good one. So my movie, which <laughs> fits our theme of hysterical women who have every right to be hysterical, was written and directed by John Cassavetes, released in 1974, A Woman Under the Influence. Mabel's not crazy. She's unusual. Tell me what you want me to be, how you want me to be. I can be that. I can be anything. You tell me. There's a lot to say about this, about this film. And I'm just going to say up top that we could do two to three full episodes about John Cassavetes on yes, his own. Yep. Um, so I'm going to try to keep this more about the film and more about Mabel Longetti, the character in the film played by Gina Rollins. Um, but he is, I'm going to give a little bit of background about him because it's important. So this film was again, released in 1974. Um, Gina Rollins was nominated for a best actress Oscar in 1975 for this film. Uh, John Cassavetes was nominated as best director and Gina Rollins and John Cassavetes were married. They're a real life married couple. And she starred in a ton of his films and um, they met in 1953 when she was a student at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And he had just left the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and was kind of a struggling actor. And he acted in a few things that you would definitely know. So he kind of did hit his stride as an actor. And he used a lot of the money that he made as an actor to fund his own movies. And. So they, they were married for his entire life, um, but he died really tragically young in 1989 when he was 59 years old because he had cirrhosis and he was a longtime alcohol abuser. Um, so he had cirrhosis of the liver, died at 59. And um, again, they stayed married for his his whole life. So when we're looking at these films and looking at who, you know, John Cassavetes was as a filmmaker, it's really easy to see 
how there are definitely some moments and some characters where he's pulling from his own life and experience. And he's really, I'm going to kind of get into some of the, the, what critics have said about him as well, but I like his work for that reason. Like it's very distinctly his to me. Um, and when I watch his films, like I know I'm watching a John Cassavetes film. Um, I did see a really funny, I didn't read it, but I saw a really funny headline for an article. That's like, how the hell do you watch John Cassavetes films? Like, where should you even begin? Like, it's <laughs> one of those kind of like, what do you do with this guy? I don't think he's that complicated personally. Um, but I do think he's got like a nice wide range of work that I can see where you'd want to know where to jump in. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, uh, he is obviously one of those like legendary filmmakers. There's so much yeah. myth around him and so much respect um, that gets hurled at him. And, you know, Hugely for good reason, he, he made a lot of great films and he was a pioneer in independent cinema for sure. But I think also, like, if you're not used to watching independent movies, if you're not used to watching people kind of just talk things out, um, then it might seem a little jarring. Um, right. And so, yeah, I think there are people that that don't know where to start or don't know how to jump into Cassavetes. And I actually think this movie is the best one to jump into. That's just me personally. Um, but yeah, so I, to I totally understand. That. I agree. And I think it's, um, I was reading a lot, like I said, I was reading a lot of, you know, what critics had said about this film and about Cassavetti's work. And Ray Carney, who is a film critic, who did a lot of interviews with Cassavetti's before he died and kind of like throughout his, I think the last part of his career, um, he counts this film as part of what he calls the marriage trilogy. So he said that A Woman Under the Influence, Minnie Moskowitz and Faces. So Minnie Moskowitz was released in 1971. Faces was released in 1968. So he said that these three films are kind of like for him, a part of the marriage trilogy. So if you're going to jump in, if to Cassavetes, if you're interested at all, um, I think this is a great film to start with and then go look at those other two because they're fucking great, too. <laughs> they're fucking great. Um, but a brief synopsis of this film. And again, I don't know if this is even going to do it justice because yeah. this film is so intense. Um, but Mabel and Nick Longetti, who are played by Gina Rollins and Peter Falk, uh, she's an L.A. housewife. He's a construction worker and they're navigating marriage and parenthood through increasingly erratic behavior and aggressive attempts to show each other love in a way that showcases their non-existent normalcy. Which is a lot, I know. Wow, that's quite a what is that a one sentence synopsis? That's quite that's a, a good one, one sentence. Yeah. I'm trying to do the one sentence bangers. Yeah, man. But because what really stands out to me about this film is that it feels like, and again, this is also kind of a reason why I can't. I feel like you can't really spoil this movie, so I am going to try to talk about it from beginning to end as much as possible. Mm -hmm. um, because Roger Ebert said. And in his review of the film uh, in 1988, it's posted on RogerEbert.com if you're at all interested. Um, but he said there is no safe resolution at the end of a Cassavetes film. You feel the tumult of life goes on uninterrupted, that each film is a curtain raised on a play already in progress. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what this movie feels like to me. Yeah. So I feel like there's... There's something so fresh about seeing the the turmoil and there is some resolution, but you're not ever really put in a comfortable place in this yeah. film. And I fuck it. I love it. I love it. Um, so this is really 
a story about a woman who, and this is an important distinction to make, and this plays into my, my concept of our theme. This is more a movie about a woman having a breakdown than it is a woman dealing with a mental illness to me. Sure. And I know that there's no, there hasn't really been a definitive diagnosis of a mental illness uh, in the film. Yeah. But we're really watching someone crumble under the weight of a responsibility to a lifestyle that she doesn't necessarily want. Right. Mm -hmm. So it feels more like a breakdown to me for that, for that reason, which is why I felt comfortable putting it in this theme of every right women who have every right to be hysterical because we're seeing the effect of life on someone who might've been a little bit unstable to begin with, but certainly isn't helped by the cause of being a mother, a young mother of three with a husband who is not really around. He works a lot, but they still love each other. And it just, I don't know. It just felt like I needed to make that distinction because I'm not at any point going to be diagnosing her or saying, you know, like this is what she had. That's not what this movie was about. And, but Mabel to me is, just an electric character. And you can tell that from her entrance in the film. Like the first time that you see her on the screen, she's coming out of her house shouting. She's yelling not to yell to her kids as she's packing them into a car and sending them away for the night with her mother. And she's just this like ball of nervous energy. And she's hopping around on one foot. She like, you know, she dropped her shoe and she's putting a bike in the trunk. And, you know, she is just electric from the minute you see her. And she does have these little kind of like quirks and ticks, you know, where she kind of sputters and throws her thumb over her shoulder a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for the most part, it's like you're seeing a very harried woman who's trying to run a household. And this is also a house with no privacy. There's no privacy. So um, Mabel and Nick sleep in their dining room on a pullout sofa. And there's always kids over and there's always kids around. And her mother and mother-in-law are are always there. And I think it's also kind of fun that um, the moms in the film, so Mabel's mother and Nick's mother, are played by Gina Rollins' mother and John Cassavetti's mother. Yeah. So it's a real family affair. But so we start out in this place where we're watching someone kind of just rush to get her kids out of the way because she's having a night out with her husband, which is very common in the 60s and 70s. Like we're getting a sitter. We're going to spend some time together. And so when Nick calls and he's already displaying a little bit of anger, you know, he's yelling at his boss about how he's not going to work tonight because he's got a date with his wife. um, But he ends up working anyway. And we kind of watch Mabel at the house because he hasn't called. (laughs) He just goes to work an extra shift and does not call her. And we see him talk about that with his coworkers. Like his coworkers are like, you should call her. (laughs) And he's like, I don't know. She's going to go crazy. Like, so he's kind of afraid of her a little bit. So he doesn't call her all night. And we're watching Mabel just kind of devolve into this, you know, she she's drinking a six pack by herself at a table. She wanders out into the street and into a bar where she picks up a stranger and she does like this really dangerous thing. And this is all within the first, you know, 30 minutes of the film. And so you're not quite sure how to feel about her when you meet her, because you're like, I don't understand this woman's reaction to being alone. 
And, you know, again, the cultural narrative is always moms love to be alone, but I think she's built her whole life around the happiness of her family and her kids. And not just their happiness, but wanting them to be to have fun and for her to be fun with them. So in an empty house, she just she cannot calm down. Like she really wanders out into the street like someone who is not in control of what she's doing. Right. And you're right about what you said earlier, which makes this movie, I think, a little bit more compelling for me personally, which is that they don't tell you what this is, whether or not. I mean, they sort of suggest that she drinks a lot. Right. Right. But also that she just might be quirky right there are moments where you know her quirkiness kind of comes out and you're like ooh, but then she kind of like pulls it back in a little bit and fulfills the responsibility like that whole scene about her picking up the kids and she's kind of on the street and she's asking these women you know what time is it she's got to pick her kids up and you're like wondering at one moment oh my gosh she's just like out on the loose and she's just kind of running around but then she actually picks up her kids like she has yeah. a, has a purpose. And so the bus that, comes. <laughs> yeah, the bus comes. She's definitely doing what she is, what she has said she's doing. So that is interesting to me that they don't really define what it is. And I think that that I think we're so wanting that a lot of times in these kinds of stories. Like we want to know what's wrong with her. What's her deal? And they don't really fully give it to you. And it just makes you feel like, OK, this might be a little bit more textured you know exactly and that that plays into like what you just said about the texture really plays into this part of the ebert um the ebert review that i think hit me really hard in the gut because i read it after i watched the film and and after i wrote my own notes because i hate reading what critics have to say before i actually know what i want to say yeah exactly oh i know what you mean (laughs) so i read it after but it really does like this does make sense based on what you just said which is um so ebert says that because cassavetti's work felt so fresh it was assumed that cassavetti's was an improvisational filmmaker not true he was the writer of his films but because he based their stories on his own emotional experience and because his actors were family or friends his world felt spontaneous there was never the arc of a plot, but the terror of free fall. Yeah. And that is Mabel to a T for me, where it's like you're not even realizing yet that there's not a distinctive narrative because you're just in this fear place of what the fuck's going to happen next and why is it happening? Because there's no explanation. Um, I I just yeah, I love I love those scenes and especially that scene where. Where things really start to kick off is when Mabel has the kids come home from school and she wants to throw them a party. She wants to throw a party with them and they're having Mm. some friends come over. So they're in the backyard. You know, she's got balloons blown up and the kids who come over are dropped off by their dad. And their dad, you can tell, is someone who just never does this. Like he's totally wearing a a suit like he's like a business guy. And he's like, look, my wife couldn't drop him off. I said I'd take him. I got to (laughs) go. And she's like, no, come hang out, play. And she's always kind of like, you know, she's wearing a house dress. She never really looks the part of the stay at home mom either, which adds to that layer of like what's going on, because she's like she's not fully dressed and she's wearing slippers and, you know, but she's really excited and she's she loves her kids. She loves being around her kids. And so that she ushers everyone outside. She makes the dad stay and ushers them all out to this party where 
I don't know. I think one of the funniest lines in the movie happens where she's she's trying to get the kids to do Swan Lake and she keeps saying, die, die for Mr. Jensen, like where they all fall to the ground. It's very cute. Uh, (laughs) But in this party, she's acting very childlike herself and she's very like fluttering around and dancing and trying to get him to have fun. And he is not only is he not feeling it, he's worried. And he says to her, flat out you know she sends the kids upstairs and she's like you know go go change we'll do costumes and makeup and he's like i don't know that i want to leave my kids with you like you're acting a little little screwy and at this point kids are running around naked (laughs) like there is just it's chaos in the house and he's not exactly wrong but the kids are also fine and totally having fun so nick walks in on the middle of this scene with this guy he's never seen before in the house with his wife, the kids are running everywhere. And because, you know, when Mabel brought that guy home at the beginning of the film, he left right before Nick gets home. So you, but you kind of get the feeling that this is not the first time this happened. Um, so Nick comes in and really flips out and like hits the guy and, you know, they're fighting and screaming. And what we've seen of Nick so far is that he's got a temper like in this, you know, when he, when he does come home after this night of not calling Mabel, he comes home with eight guys from work. And, you know, she's like, well, do you want to have spaghetti? Like, you know, she's trying to do the upstanding wife thing. And she's like, I'll be anything you want me to be. Um, But she's sitting at this table looking around at everyone and asking them so quietly, like, what's your name? And what's your name? And she just doesn't feel comfortable in her own home. And Nick doesn't help her feel comfortable. But then he yells at her when she tries to make herself comfortable and she tries to like dance and kind of sing and, you know, kind of get to know these guys. So this, like this Nick character is really interesting to me too. Right. Mm -hmm. Because so you have Peter Falk, obviously like beloved Peter Falk Columbo. Right. Um, I knew of him before I saw this movie and immediately I'm just, I always gravitate towards Peter Falk. I think he's a great actor, but his vibe, it's very hard to pin down because, okay, you can tell that he truly loves his wife and that he, you know, sort of is always like in this moment where he's just trying to encourage her to like be herself. Right. Right. Because he's kind of like the thing that I think that, that really comes out in this scene, this, um, co-workers that come home to eat the spaghetti scene is sort of watching him be embarrassed by his wife and that is i think a thing that continuously happens throughout the movie for nick's character is that he's embarrassed of his wife and sort of interacting with when she interacts with other guys that he knows so you know so nick's character is kind of like a construction worker he works for the city works for the sewer system um and so you know a lot of his the guys that he works with they come home and you know they're just kind of like um you know got a guys guys types and i think that that's a big factor in how he feels when when his wife comes around because he wants to like I don't know, like sort of not impress them, but just I think he wants so badly to just not have drama. Well, that's interesting, though, because what's weird about it to me is and I kept feeling this throughout that whole scene and every scene after as well. They all know about her. They all constantly ask, like, how's Mabel? How's Mabel? So he clearly has said something to them or felt comfortable enough talking about how he thinks she's 
a little nuts, a little crazy, like however he would say it, you know, he's already told spread her business out there without her knowledge. So they're kind of like all these guys are treating her with kid gloves because of what he's told them about her. Right. And and it's weird that he would suggest to her like, you know, you're fine. Like you're not you're you're fine. You're not, quote unquote, crazy. You're hysterical. You just be yourself. Like, don't worry about it. But then he's also like talking out of the other side of his mouth about it, where he's basically like, I don't know. She's unpredictable. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, and it's just sort of like that weird um, disconnect of his character that feels like different types of ways about the situation. But ultimately, the idea of kind of that male embarrassment of women's emotions, that is really interesting to me. You know? Oh, it's and it's also fascinating because as, as this fight. So after this fight goes on with this you know, this guy who, you know, Mr. Jensen, who comes to drop off his kids and he, you know, grabs the kids and leaves the house. It really devolves into a scene where he's calling this doctor to come and, you know, kind of try to calm Mabel down. And she ends up being committed for six months. Yeah. And in that six months, Nick's to me, Nick's own madness surfaces. Yeah. And he's not much better off than she is. Absolutely. The scene where he like takes the kids to the beach and puts them on the back of the truck. I'm just like, so you like having now you're in the situation that she's in where you're the caretaker. You're not pulled together like you've got your own issues when it comes to like how to be and how to be proper and how to be respectable, quote unquote, and the the kind of parent you need to be in the eyes of like other people. You know what I mean? Right. It's not, he's not great at it either. And that's, and, that's if, you're, and if you're holding, if you're holding her up to this standard where the paragon of her success is her children. Right. He's failing at that miserably yeah. when in, in her absence, like he's letting his kids drink beer with him in the back of a truck like on the flatbed of a pickup truck with no seatbelts or anything. And he pulled him out of school to do this. Like he is not, he's actually more dangerous to them than she is. Right. In a lot of ways. And so his own madness is like part of her issue as well. I think that she's not dealing with someone who can respond to her and what she needs in a way that makes her feel safe or comfortable, because you can absolutely tell that when she does feel safe and comfortable, she doesn't act like that. And it's hard for her to get to that point on her own. But speaking of those kids, they're the three kids in the movie. I don't know what happened to the actual actress. I tried to look her up. I think her name's Christina Grisanti. But the character of Maria, the little kid, 100% went on to front a punk band. Like 100%. Yes. <laughs> I was like, that little girl is after my own heart right now. I love that. I love all those kids. But she particularly cracks me up. So when Mabel, Mabel goes away for six months... And when she comes home, Nick wants to have this huge party. Like he's just, again, he doesn't ever read the situation about what she needs. He's always trying to pretend that everything's okay and that she can be okay in any situation. And so his mom and like everyone's telling him like, this is a bad idea. But, you know, people are, of course, excited to see her. But again, he's kind of spreading her business out there on the street and for his own need to feel comfortable and and normal, quote unquote, he wants to have people around and just treat it like a party when it's like your wife's coming home from six months away. And when she does come home, by the time she gets there, 
thankfully, like his mother's like kicked everyone out. Basically, <laughs> she's right. like, yo, this I, like we love you. Thank you for coming. But you cannot be here. This is not right. Cool. And she did it. Not Nick. Not he sent Nick. the mom to do it. Right. He sent her to do it. He was yeah. outside pacing in the rain and she did it. And so there's a very small gathering when she, when Mabel does come home and she still can't handle it. So imagine if that big party had happened and there's this really heartbreaking scene because it's her parents and, you know, Nick's um, mother and like a family friend like and the doctor who committed her. Um, mm. <laughs> we can talk about Dr. Shaw all day, but mm. he's there. Um, and really it's heartbreaking because there's this one point where you can see her starting to be so uncomfortable with what's going on and being watched and being looked at. And she's trying to keep it together. And she even says, you know, I'm just trying to like, you know, be here and have fun. Like, I'm just trying to be here. And she looks at one point across the table at her father and says, you know, are you going to defend me or are you going to stick up for me? Mm -hmm. And he's like, I don't understand what she means. And her mother is like, you totally understand what she means. Like she's looking and clearly has been for quite some time for someone in her life to stop making her feel like shit and making her feel like she's doing everything wrong. So she's just like begging in a very quiet way in that moment for the man she's had the longest relationship with in her life, her father, to tell every to kind of show everyone that she's OK, that she doesn't need all of this kid gloves and pampering and everything. Like just it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, and that whole scene kind of devolves again in its own way into this really erratic scene where she ends up, this is kind of also how she displays her discomfort. Like she ends up, you know, kind of dancing on the table and doing ballet moves on the table. And it's shot really interestingly because you're not looking at her do it. It's shot from behind her. So you're looking at everyone's reaction to her, mm -hmm. um, which is just, again, like really, really astute way to kind of direct that kind of scene. I think the the knee jerk reaction is like, you want to see what she's doing, but you can only see like blurs of movement from her. And what's when, since, so since you're looking at out and you're looking at people's reaction to her, what you're seeing now is Nick kind of pleading with her and her kids are all pushing him away and yeah. trying to like defend, they're trying to defend their mom. Like they're like, get away from her. Like they're literally fighting their own dad, which again, heartbreaking in its own way, but also wild to see that their connection to her is not based on her acting a particular way. Right. And so he's trying to drag him upstairs and put him to bed and they keep running down and, you know, people leave the party. And again, it just really, it's just, it's brutal. It's a brutal scene um, towards the end of the film. And it really hit me. That's when I started looking up and, and kind of correlating this film to some things that I'd, you know, read about second wave feminism and the women's health movement, particularly because, uh, in 1963, when Betty Friedan released The Feminine Mystique, it was kind of about this. Um, you know, it was she referred to it as the problem with no name, which is that, you know, women were not being fulfilled as housewives and, and mothers, um, but they were being told that they should be happy with their lives. And I'm going to add the caveat here um, because I remember distinctly fighting with a professor about this. Feminine Mystique is not intersectional. And it is you have to read every sentence in that book with the disclaimer at the end for white women. Right, <laughs> like, of course. You yeah. know, it's the problem that has no name for white women. Yeah. <laughs> but this is, again, like a movie that's very indicative of what that looks like, um, because it, 
like I, you know, like I said before, it's looking at the ways that living in these oppressive systems have had a, an effect on the mental health of women and the reaction to the effect that it had on women as they started to voice their discomfort and as they started to voice their displeasure was that they were just drugged up and given pills. And Mabel says that when she comes back from, you know, her six month stay at this institution, she describes very plainly how she got electroshock yeah. therapy. And it's like Electra, she was she was talking about her drug regimen and when they brought her pills and when she got her shock treatment. And it was like we were trying everything we could culturally to literally medicate women into complacency. Right. And I think that that can't be denied in this world. And part of the reason to me that she is a character who has every right to be hysterical is because she's this big personality that's being crushed into this small and also shrinking world. And her husband is incredibly volatile and unstable and her mother and mother-in-law and the people in her life are not supportive of her artistry or creativity. So it would be really easy to look at this movie and be like, this is a story about a woman with a mental health issue. But I think that's why it was important for me to draw the distinction early on that for me, this is more a movie about a woman having a breakdown and what that looks like to me. Yeah, I got to say, it's it's such a great movie. It's really like the pacing of it is so interesting because it does really feel like you're just being dropped into the middle of this family. And like, you know, I said before, when it comes to Cassavetes, it's that thing where like, you know, he if you are not used to, to seeing independent film and, he, and especially if you've not seen like 70s. Um, independent film and, you know, maybe early 80s independent film. I mean, there's a lot of this mm -hmm. happening. And so I think it does feel immediate and emotional um, to a degree that makes people feel uncomfortable, maybe. And, you know, when it comes down to it, I think that, like, the the biggest takeaway for me was this idea of, like, the motherhood aspect and the idea that, was the topic of motherhood and how she was as a mother. And if she was a fit mother, if she was allowed to be around mm -hmm. kids, this neighbor doesn't want to drop his kids off at this woman's house because he's seeing her as this like hysterical, weird, unconventional person. Um, and, you know, I think that that obviously there's that, that expectation for mothers that they have to be like a steady hand and that, mm -hmm. you know, they take care of everybody and they don't, they're not allowed to freak out. They're not allowed to have a breakdown. They're not allowed to, to think anything except for the survival of the family. And, you know, it's just interesting how this movie kind of shows that and right. how it's complicated, but also shows you what happens when like you actually take the mother out and then put the dad in there and the dad's not yeah. great at it either. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love this movie. I think that it's it is such an intense ride of a movie to watch, which is so bizarre to say about a family drama. But it's totally true to me. Like, it's just yeah. a ride. And I think Gina Rollins is absolutely incredible in this movie. And there are so many moments where I forgot she was acting and I was just in this story. Same with Peter Falk. Like, if, if you only know him from Columbo, you should watch him in some Cassavetes films. Oh man, he's a he really is compelling actor. The best. All right. So we are going to take a sharp tonal detour <laughs> and get into my movie for this week for the theme of hysterical women who had every right to be hysterical. 
This is a movie from 1944. It was directed by George Cukor and it's called Gaslight. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. And you thought I was being cool to you. <laughs> Keeping no, people away not from cruel. <laughs> making you a prisoner. Oh, you're the kindest man in the world. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, the first thing I will say about this film, this film was adapted from a play of the same name that was released in 1938 and is actually a remake. Hello. Of a British film from the same name. So basically the play comes out in 38, 1940, there's a British version of Gaslight in film. And then the 44 version is a remake of that. All right. Um, now, George Cukor, you know, if you're a classic movie head like I am, you definitely know who he is. I mean, he did the Philadelphia story. He did the Judy Garland version of A Star is Born, My Fair Lady, many, 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 many other things. So if I am going to give a one sentence synopsis of Gaslight, okay? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah, right? It would be as follows. A woman moves back into the house where, as a young girl, she watched her aunt be murdered with her new husband, who is trying to convince her that she's insane. Beautiful. I just, I, I, now that you've got these like one sentence synopsis, I, I feel to, I only can respond in kind, basically. Um, <laughs> I like it because it gives him more time to talk about the movie. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so first of all, this this film takes place like in the, the plot. It's it's takes place in, like the 1900s, maybe like yeah. like Edwardian era. Is that what it's called? Yeah, you can tell by the bustles. Yeah, well, it's like whatever the whatever the era is where housekeepers are wearing frilly bonnets and aprons and and people use gas lamps in their homes. Okay? No electric, man. No electric. No. And of course, we, at, at this point in time, I think we all know the term gaslighting, right? It gets used a lot, uh, especially on the Internet. But just to let you know, this is where it came from. And it's it's in reference to the nefarious use of gas lamps in this film, which I will discuss in just a moment. Um, so to get into the film a little bit, we have classic film legend Ingrid Bergman, who stars as Paula. She's the said woman from the synopsis I just gave you. OK, so before the start of this movie, it's understood that Paula's mother has died and she was at some point as a child sent to live with her aunt Alice, who was this very famous opera singer. OK, and they're living in this house in London, number nine, Thornton Square, to be exact. <laughs> and while they're living there, the aunt is murdered. OK, and after she's murdered, Paula is sent to Italy to train as an opera singer. I guess she's going to take over the family business. I, I guess that's what's <laughs> happening. And, and when she's in Italy, she meets a man named Gregory, who is played by Charles Boyer. And I want to talk about him right off the bat. He is bad news from the jump to me. Oh, my God. I don't even know where to begin with Gregory. Two weeks? Two weeks. That is like so <laughs> many red flags. We must point them out. 
first of all, when he's introduced, it's clear that Paula is sprung. Okay. Yeah. He's French. He's debonair. She's never been so happy in her life. And as you said, they get married after two weeks of knowing each other. Okay. Which even in 1944 seems a little crazy. I just have to say it's wild. And she tried to get a week away from him and he shows up like she could not from the beginning get an inch away from this dude. Yeah. It's obsessive love. I mean, it's just it's two weeks in a fever and they're like, let's do this. But so after they get married, he starts talking about how he's like, you know, Italy's great or whatever, but I want to move back to London. But guess what? I don't have anywhere to live. And of course, Paul is like, well, I do have this boarded up old house where I watched my aunt die. You know how you do. You know, I just have this haunted house where a brutal crime happened. And Gregory is like, perfect. Let's go. When's the next train? Just like, what? So. Here's the thing. Paula is definitely not over the death of her aunt because basically she's like, actually, I told you that information, but you know, like, I don't really know if I want to actually do it. Right. She's bugging out. She's bugging the (laughs) fuck out. And Gregory is like, listen, we'll just put all of her old things in an attic. It'll be fine. You know? And then like later on, I can't tell if it was like later on that day. I could be wrong. Um, because I've seen this movie several times, but it had been a while. But, um, at some point, Right after this, that Paula finds this book in a drawer that has this letter that's stuck into the pages. And it was written to her aunt by some guy named Sergius Bauer. Okay. So already I'm sitting here going, I'm thinking of making this move to this house that has a lot of bad feelings for me. And then I find this haunted letter in a book. Addressed to my aunt whose murder has never been solved. Exactly. And yet what happens? They go anyway. I would have been like, fuck it. We are staying in Italy. I know it to be a lovely place. We can carry on our lives here. Completely. But they go to but they go to London. And like, by the way, Gregory catches Paula with this letter from Sergis Sergis Bauer. And he completely loses his shit on her. OK, yeah. second red flag. So they move to London. They go to this house uh, that she basically doesn't really want to live in, but wants to, like, keep her man happy. Right. And she's like over the over the days and weeks and months to come. She's like, oh, I just cannot do anything right by this guy. OK, he gives her like a cameo or like a, a brooch, you know, the thing that goes like on the collar or whatever. Um and he's like, this is from my mother. And it was my grandmother's. And I want you to have him, blah, 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 blah. And then suddenly she just loses it. It's like gone from her purse. And she has to apologize a million times over to him. But he does creepy shit. Like, he's like, I'm going to put it in here. You remember it's here, right? Yep. Like, he's the one who puts it in the bag and is like, you remember that I'm putting it here. Like, he's so he infantilizes her so much. Yeah, because what happens is other things start disappearing all over the house. Okay, and Gregory is instantly like, Paula, why do you keep hiding things like he's already like there's no other possible explanation for any of this shit other than Paula is doing crazy things like she's a crazy lady. Right. And she doesn't remember doing them. So she's extra upset. Yeah, because she's got this husband of hers that's basically like, you know, 
telling her like he's giving her things or he's like things are leaving his sight and it's her fault all the time. Right. And at night, Gregory goes to work. All right. At his office or his man cave or whatever the fuck. Right. And Paula is alone in this house and she's hearing like strange footsteps and she's seeing the gas lights, like the lamps in the house sort of dim and brighten randomly on their own. Okay. Now here's my thing. Okay. I'm sitting here going, is it completely unreasonable to assume that the gas lights are going on and off because you are living in a house where you saw a murder? Well, there's also that scene where, because he hires these two maids and there's this scene where one of the maids is like, well, maybe it's just the gas and the pipes and sometimes it's forceful and sometimes it's weak. You know, she's like trying to make all these excuses. I mean, listen, I got more to say about the housekeepers later, of course, but it's just a thing where it's like, so she's like tells her husband this like thing, like who hasn't told their partner once or twice in their relationship i think there's a ghost in here that just seems like total typical shit between couples that's at at one point someone in the relationship thinks that there's a ghost in the house or in the airbnb or wherever the fuck you are okay wait does it (laughs) i feel like that's the case how i've been in relationships where i was definitely the person to be like this apartment has a ghost in it i can tell (laughs) you know just saying that the reaction of gregory to this right and here's the thing she is living in a haunted house technically i'm not saying that this is what's happening but just Mm -hmm. the idea that she has the thought gregory is like you are fucking crazy woman like you and that imagination again you know i need to have you sent away crazy town like you can't keep saying all this stuff all the stuff's missing Now you're talking about ghosts because the lights are going on and off. I mean, so he's basically like, you know, essentially like making her feel like everything that she does is insane, quote unquote, hysterical, quote unquote. You know what I mean? Like and her fault and her (laughs) fault. And so what ends up happening is that Paula is isolated in this house by Gregory, because at this point she's she's too crazy. She can't be let loose out on the streets. And he's convinced her that she's a kleptomaniac that she's seeing ghosts and that she's basically having some sort of breakdown. Okay. And so he doesn't let her go out. She wants to go out to the goddamn opera. She wants to go and watch somebody play Edwardian piano. And he's like, no, we are telling people. No, if somebody comes to visit you, get those housekeepers to tell them you are sick. So it's basically like, he's just breaking her down and he's getting jealous. Any, anytime somebody wants to see her, talk to her, and then, you know, he hires this young housekeeper, okay, who is played by the one and only Angela Lansbury, okay, which She's I so think awesome. was her first movie. I believe that this was her first movie, and I don't really know if, like, National Velvet came out before this movie, but they both came out in 1944, so I don't know which one, but I, I do believe this might be her first film. But Angela Lansbury's character, has a legit weird vibe to her. Okay. (laughs) She's got a legit vibe and it's definitely weird. And of course, when Paula is telling Gregory this, he's like, see, everything you do is convincing me that you are just a crazy lady, hysterical woman. Like now you think this woman is weird and has it out for you. Like, you know, he's really 
put her in a situation. All right. And obviously that's the horror of this film. It's just this idea that somebody is basically telling you that you're crazy and you feel like you're not, but maybe you are right. The big question. So Paula's only real saving grace at this point in this film is that there's this detective at Scotland Yard who is played by Joseph Cotton, and he just happens to be this big fan of her aunt, right? And he senses that there's something going on with Paul and Gregory, okay? So he attempts to sort of get in the house and try to get access to Paula at many different points of the film because he's like, yo, is there some fuck shit about? I need to find this out right and the way that he sees her for the first time absolutely cracks me up because after being isolated in this house forever gregory finally says like hey let's go for a day out and she's like oh my god this is so exciting she gets all dressed up and then they go to the tower of london where it's all about (laughs) murder and fucking jewels and shit and he's bugging out about the jewels and she's like what the fuck's going on? Like she's that's where she loses the brooch. Like so when so when when Cameron first sees her, he thinks he's seeing a ghost because apparently she looks just like her aunt. Right. But they're at the Tower of London. Like she thought she was going to some fancy high society affair and he's like, "Yo, what's going on?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like Gregory is definitely on one and he's a slick he's a slick dude because Joseph Cotton is really trying to put the thumb screws on this guy but he's not you know the guy shutting him down left to right and at some point i gotta talk about my favorite character in this movie okay so at some point joseph cotton's character sort of teams up with this old lady who's (laughs) named miss thwaites bloodthirsty bessie (laughs) okay that paula actually met on the train in italy at the very beginning of this movie so as it turns out this lady mrs thwaites or miss thwaites she lives in thornton square and let me just tell you folks miss thwaites is a murderino of the highest (laughs) order okay (laughs) this lady reads so many murder books that her family calls her bloodthirsty bessie Oh, God, I love her so much. She is so great. I love, honestly, like when it comes down to like classic film characters, I love this type of character. Like the old lady that kind of comes into the plot and she's kind of like a nosy neighbor, right? And she's obsessed with this idea that she lives in the same neighborhood where the Alice Alquist murder happened. And she has no idea that she's offering Diggy Biscuits as we find out are digestive biscuits but she calls them diggy biscuits i was like holy shit (laughs) but she has no idea that she's offering these diggy biscuits to alice's niece on the train okay like she's no idea but she's obsessed with this murder she ends up kind of teaming up with joseph cotton's character because i think she realizes that there's something up so you got like a detective and a murderino together on the case i think we've seen this before exactly right people will know this situation very well okay and listen all right i am not giving away the ending of this film despite everybody writing us telling us to give away the endings of films on this podcast okay because i I don't know it's just like i don't feel good about it yeah i don't want to i don't want to do it for this film i think in particular because i feel like i want you all to watch an old movie once in a while okay do the work all right. So you must you must watch an old movie from the 40s sometimes and I'm not going to give it away. But anyway, 
do it for bloodthirsty Bessie. Okay, let's just do it for her. <laughs> but but yeah, when I when I talked about this earlier, I mean, this movie feels very Hitchcockian in that in that way that it's very psychological, you know, it but this movie was it won several Oscars when it came out. I mean, it's obviously like in the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress. But, you know, more more interestingly, I think from from for most people is that it is it becomes a part of the lexicon and the pop culture sort of legend of what is happening in the film, which is this concept of gaslighting, this concept of like you have this guy who is trying to, you know, basically tell his wife that she's crazy and he's doing he's setting up all these scenarios to where she will always fail she will always be the crazy person she will always be hysterical and just this idea uh i mean just like if you want to talk about it sort of in a general sense that's a very stressful situation to be in it's this idea that your ticket has already been written and you can't change it and you're just sort of like trapped in this situation where somebody thinks you're nuts Okay. Well, and also just like Mabel in A Woman Under the Influence, he wants to have her committed. Like yes. he threatens her with that. And he can because men could just commit women back then because they didn't like how they were acting. <laughs> so, Absolutely. It's a real yeah. threat. And and that I think, too, is the is a big takeaway for me whenever I watch this film is that, yes, in this era, I mean, obviously we're talking about 1944, but also we're talking about like 1900 too. You had like little to no agency as a woman. And basically you are a man's property if you're married. Okay. And he gets to do whatever he wants with you. He gets to tell you when and not to go. You know, he gets to tell you, you can't go out. You can't do anything. You will be committed if you, you know, do some crazy stuff, quote unquote. And it's just sort of like... I mean, it just felt like such a trap for her. And and what ends up happening is that she really does have to, like, lean on other people in her orbit to basically clear her own name, um, you know, because of, of that idea. She can't just, like, do it for herself. And, you know, it's just very um, it's it's a it is a nerve wracking film. Charles Boyer's character is like evil fuckboy boyfriend 101 he's got like, women out here kissing bibles <laughs> like run away from that shit immediately <laughs> kiss this bible so i know you're telling the truth i do not think so sir i mean if some guy after two weeks is like we're moving into your murder house no thank you no Already. thanks not not into it but it's you know it's just very interesting and like like I said, it's one of those movies where, you know, anytime it's on, I watch it. And, you know, I think it really does kind of contribute to the larger theme of this week, which is that her hysteria, quote unquote, is basically being imposed on her by her husband. All right. right. And but she deserves to be hysterical about the situation that she's in, which is that this guy is fucking setting her up. And, you know, she deserves to like know more about that and to feel emotional about that. Um, but then that all that her fake hysteria, quote unquote, is so easily um, able to stick for her and that other people are sort of, you know, getting the message that she's this crazy woman and it's all her husband's fault. You know, well, and not not only does she deserve to be hysterical about that, but I think it's enough for her to not want to move into the house where her aunt was murdered like that. 
that's where it begins to me where she has every right to be hysterical of like him forcing her to go back to this place where she is clearly uncomfortable and does not want to go. And she's trying it because she's like, you know, with you, I'll have the strength to do anything. But that is absolutely not true. And she is emotionally devastated from a trauma that happened years before that she never addressed because they just shipped her off to some opera singer. Right. <laughs> like, and the fact that he uses her own trauma against her is so yeah. wicked. It's so wicked. And I'm just like, yo, Charles Boy's character is truly one of the most evil of all time. Devious. You know? Devious. The only the, the next worst thing that a guy does in this movie is when um when Joseph Cotton's character, Cameron, when he says He's at that big opera event at that lady's house. And he's like, oh, I don't want to sit next to her. She has adenoids. <laughs> okay. Like that. To, I'm gaslighting you. That's like, <laughs> please give me adenoids, dude, all day long. I was like, I actually had to look up adenoids because I wasn't, <laughs> I was, I was unclear on what it was. Like all the men in this world are just popping off too much on things about women. And all of these women have, they all have a reason to be out on the street with pitchforks and like flaming torches. Because all of these men are varying degrees of fucked up. Yeah. Oh, my God. You know. Oh, what a movie. But I, I love this movie. And I think I'd heard of it in the context of feminism um, because... You know, when I was in school, we talked about it a lot and the concept of how men often make women feel like their problems should be minimized um, or that they're non-existent. But this is my first time seeing the film and I really appreciated seeing having the context for where that that concept comes from. Yeah, honestly, I you know, I was trying to do a little bit of research on the concept like of when people started using the term gaslighting because I, yeah. I don't to me it seems super modern like I was like oh this is like some Instagram thing um but I, I think that there is reference to it even from the 60s um it was even mentioned in sort of psychology papers and stuff like I think somebody mentioned it in the 80s uh of using the term gaslighting so you know as much as I thought it was like you know, some somebody on Twitter being funny and using the term gaslight for the concept. You know, I think it's been around actually for lo- a lot for longer. A but I do, I do think it's cool though when you have the opportunity to watch an older movie that is a, a reference point for something that's modern. Like when you see a meme or something, totally. and you finally watch the movie of what the meme is. I think it's cool. Yeah, and I think that um, you know, we will eventually do it as a theme. I think yeah. that might that might be an idea for later on in the year. But um, yeah, I, I think it I think it was a good this theme was a good opportunity to revisit Gaslight. And man, it hits completely. Such a good movie. Such a good and Ingrid Bergman is just like, ugh. I know so many times where she'll turn her face in profile and I'm like, you're Isabella Rossellini's mom. I know. I know. Just such beauty in that family. But this is a this is a great film. It definitely made me never. It, it got my hackles up. Oh yeah, it got my hackles up. Like I don't trust anyone. The ca- the cautionary tale to Completely. end all cautionary tales, right? <laughs> I saw this movie and then I went out to the grocery store, and this guy tried to hold the door open for me, and I'm like, why? Never. <laughs> I'm not crazy. You're an institution. Sorry, that's a suicidal tendency song. We don't want to get sued. Oh god. Well, okay. I enjoyed doing this week's theme so much. Me too. Do you want to give them the movies for next week? I would love nothing more. Mm. So our movies for next week are 
Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead from 1991 and Working Girl from 1988. Oh, my God. It's a couple of bangers. We got it all banger week again. Wouldn't it be great if I was like, don't tell mom the, the babysitter's dead from 1924. <laughs> <laughs> of course that was 91. What other year could that movie have come out? <laughs> oh my God. I literally could not be more excited to watch these movies. Well, watch these movies with us. Get ready for it. Yeah. Try to guess the theme. Also, we've got merch. Hey, hey, it's over in the Exactly Right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. Um, but yeah, we have a lot of fun on those bonus episodes, honestly. It really is fun. Yeah. And we've got some good ones coming up, too. Yeah, yeah. They're a great way to kind of like, you know, we, we're a little bit looser and we just kind of we don't really go too strong on the backstories of things. We just like hang out and it's it's a yeah. it's a great place. Um, well, all right, Danielle. As always, see you next time. See you next time. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. Email us at I saw what you did pod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 